All right. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We do ask that you would uh, open up your word to us, that we would know you better. Uh, Lord, know what our duties are before you. Uh, we thank you for saving us through your son, Jesus Christ, and we ask, Lord, now that um, uh, you would make us more like him. We pray this in his name. Amen. So I got a text uh, last night, uh, six something, I think it was. Uh, Andy said he didn't feel well, and so here I am. So no handouts, sorry. <laughs> we'll go from there. But Okay, last time we were talking about the decrees of God, and I thought something that would um, fall in line with that, um, starting with the decrees of God and relating heavily to the book of Revelation, and that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. So if you're looking at that, I just have the passage up. Um, we're going to look at the, I think, uh, John David... The Ordo Salutis, order of salvation. How does God save his people? What is the order by which he does that? Now, what's interesting is when we look at God, God is outside of time. He is over time. We have the beginning here and we have the end here. We are within time, but God is outside of time. So we understand these things, how God saves us, these terms that we're going to look at, within time even though they apply to outside of time, some of them, okay? And so when we talk about the decree of God, uh, I'm just going to list these things up here. The decree of God, and if you can't see it, I apologize, but the decree of God comes before us, all right? The decree of God is that which states to happen, okay? We see this throughout Scripture, um, I'm going to use this for some of the, oops, I'm going to use this for some of the uh, passages that we look at. Isaiah 60, uh, not 64, 46, 9 and 10. Look at this. These are wonderful verses, but God says, remember former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Do declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will do all my pleasure. So God decrees, he states, much like an author would write a book, God has written all of history, and he did that before. this. I apologize, I think I have a short somewhere or something. Okay, Acts 15, 18. Look at that one too. Acts, New Testament, Acts 15, 18. Right here. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Okay, now, from the beginning of the world, that puts it into the context of us because we are in time. Right? So we can say, okay, at least from the beginning of creation, God's known all of his works. But does God's knowledge change? Does God change at all? Can God change? He tells us in the Old Testament I, that I change. No, he doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change his nature. He doesn't change his attributes, his character traits. None of those things change. God does not change. His love, his wrath, his justice, nothing changes. He doesn't learn, unlike the Mormons would like for you to believe. Become something else. He is unchangeable. And so his decrees are unchangeable. What he has said will come to pass will come to pass. Very clear. After this, though, this, is, this has been some source of contention uh, in, in various... And I know this is small writing for you back there. It's your fault. You could have sat right here. Okay? But it's foreknowledge. The foreknowledge of God also is prior to time. So if we're looking at this kind of in this timeline, we can say time starts here, right? Because foreknowledge is outside of it. But God's foreknowledge 
is that which he knows because he has decreed it. God's knowledge is not something that he knows because he has somehow learned it. God doesn't look into the future and say, hmm, what will Jeff do? Uh, oh, I see that he's going to respond to the gospel, and so therefore I'm going to make sure he hears it because he's such a good guy. We talked about last time that little spark of goodness in you, the Pelagian theory, right? Pelagius, the British monk, 300s. That's not, that's not acceptable to Scripture's teaching or account of how man works, his nature. Okay? Man cannot respond because he has no goodness. So God's foreknowledge is what he knows based on his decree. He doesn't learn it or know it outside of anything. We can look at Romans 8. And again, like I said, a lot of this is going to tie back into Romans. Romans 8, 28, and you know this. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called, that's a people group, according to his purpose. So he has a purpose. And his decrees and his foreknowledge show that. For whom he did foreknow. Notice it's whom. It's a person. It's personal. For whom he did foreknow. It's not just the acts of goodness. It's, it's the person for whom he did foreknow. He also did predestinate. And that's the next thing. For whom he did foreknow, his foreknowledge, he did predestinate. And my timeline's getting shorter because I'm trying to do this. Trying to do this outside of time, right? He did predestinate. So predestination, predestination is next. For whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate. To be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, he also called. So naturally, guess what's going to be the next thing? Calling. Right? Calling is going to be the next order, the thing in the order of salvation, the order of salutis. He's going to call. Now, that is within time. The calling is within time because that's where we exist, within time. Okay, We existed in the mind of God back here. But we can't think outside of time. So to say that we existed eternally is horrific in the sense that we ourselves did not have not all existed. We are, our existence doesn't coexist with the existence of God. Does that make sense? We still were created even though he had in eternity past us in mind. Make sense? Okay. Now, I'm going to diverge for just a second because this is important. We're going to start getting into the things that actually apply physically in time to us. Okay? And as I do that, notice this. It's very interesting. I told you last time, if you were here, that God does not change. Don't mention it again. He doesn't change. But there are things that apply to us. Okay? But let's look at some of the titles of God. What is He to Jesus Christ, to God the Father? In Old and New Testaments, what are some of the titles that He has? That Jesus or God, have, not necessarily Jesus in terms of his, his messianic ministry, but what is he known as? The what slain before the foundation of the world? The lamb slain. So what, what was that sacrifice? That was, uh, he is redeemer, right? The lamb was sacrificed to redeem us, right? He is creator. Sorry? He is the great physician. Coming from a pharmacist. Thank you. Counselor. Sustainer. All right, one more. Helper. All right, so let's, let's go. And all of these are in Scripture, explicitly. Many, many more. But let's just take these for just a second. If God existed in eternity past, before he created you, and he didn't need you, right? We call that the aseity of God. He doesn't exists outside of himself and doesn't need you. He didn't create you because he needed love or community. All right, community. He was perfectly happy with himself and Jesus Christ and the Spirit coexisting eternally before creation. But Jesus is called Redeemer before anything's created. Why? 
There was nothing yet to redeem. He has a title before that thing is needed. He's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That must mean that his plan all along has been to redeem. He decrees the need for redemption. Right? Does that make him the author of sin? No. This is why Adam, the first Adam who was created, was created in perfection. He was created with the absolute uh, absence of the influence of any sin. There was nothing Adam had to face in foot that would cause him to sin. He wasn't born with a DNA influence and have sinful uh, genetics or parents. His, his, his environment didn't cause him to, to sin. There was nothing that, that compelled Adam to sin other than his pure free choice. And that was the only example of pure free choice. Okay? Uh, you might not like it, but, you know, if uh, there, there's the joke, and I'm sure you've heard it and you probably uh, you know, I want to. I don't want to. Fragile. Sleep. Father did not like the passengers screaming going up the cliff. Anybody get that? Was it too early in the morning? Okay. So, my point is this: Christ is our redeemer, and He was the redeemer back here. Creator. Before God created anything, he was creator. That was a title that he held. He hadn't created anything. So he didn't become creator when he created. He was creator before he created it. Right? These titles are eternal. Attributes are eternal in God. Understand that it makes seeing all of history much easier. It makes understanding how we live much easier, right? Because I can look now at my Redeemer and my faith in my sinful situation doesn't depend on my obedience. It depends on God's decree. Free that Jesus Christ die for me, there's nothing I can do to change that. What confidence? Doesn't Jesus say, John 10, that if you are in Jesus and you're in my in the hands of the Father, no man can take you, pluck you out of my Father's hands? Some people have tried to, to twist and say, well, yeah, no man can take you out of the Father's hands, but you can jump out. Make you not a man. Right? Yeah, I mean, that, those are kind of the arguments that people bring up. So uh, you could apply the same to these other titles, and I didn't mean to get us going on, 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 the, on the roller coaster here, but yeah, physician. Why would he be the great physician if there were no need for healing? Why would he be, be the counselor if there wasn't someone who needed wisdom? You know, sustainer, if there wasn't something to sustain. Helper, if there wasn't someone in need of help. Those, so you can do that for all the titles. See, Merciful and so forth. Forgiving, yes, all of those. So uh, I get in trouble for doing this with my hand. So. All right, so predestination comes with it two subcategories. One category is... When, when it says, when Scripture tells us that God has predestined, there are two categories. One category is election, and the other category is reprobation. This is still outside of time. So election is God actively having grace and mercy on a select people. That is what election is. Reprobation is God not changing the hearts of certain people. And you can't have it both ways. You can't say, well, I disagree with reprobation, I agree with election, or I don't like election. You can't, it, it, the one necessitates the other. Okay? So when, when God has elected a people... And we can take examples. Pharaoh, Judas, Saul in the Old Testament, King Saul. Take a number of people that are mentioned in Scripture and we can see clearly 
God never had an intention of bringing them to salvation. He didn't. And so what does that mean? It means that his hand of grace, his hand of mercy was never upon them. And so by doing nothing, God does not force them to sin, but he hasn't changed their wills, their nature to believe. Okay? So those two things go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Well, we mentioned what was next. That was calling. And now calling is also split into two specific kinds of calling. We have the uh, general call, and we have the specific or special or effectual call. All right? One is the gospel goes out into all the world. We send out missionaries. We send out teachers, preachers, pastors. We send out people, evangelists, who can share the gospel, who can tell people about Christ. And that's the general call. Spurgeon once said, if I knew who the elect were, if God had put the elect, a yellow stripe up the backsides of all of the elect, I would run around lifting up all the shirts to see who had the yellow stripe to see who to preach to. We don't have that knowledge. Only God has that knowledge. And so we preach to all. And isn't that the command, Matthew? Right? Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go out in all the world, preach to each. Acts 1, 8, right? From, from Jerusalem and Samaria. We go out. And just so you know, it doesn't mean all of us get on a boat and go somewhere overseas. It doesn't mean we're all missionaries to somewhere else because you're a missionary where God's put you. Right? To your neighbors, your work, co-workers, those kind of things. The special call, though, is once that general message has gone out, the special call is the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the elect. It is God, by His Spirit, making the Word come to life. Now, show of hands real quick. How many of you believe, and this might be some controversy, and, and I don't mean to derail us or distract us. We can talk about it afterward or whatever, but it is a point of interest. How many of you believe God is everywhere? Everywhere. Everywhere? Not really? Everywhere. I think it's self-definable. God is in hell. God is in hell. No, not in hell. So God is everywhere, but he's not in hell. You're living a contradiction and a lie. Okay, because if he's everywhere, he has to that punishes the unbeliever eternally. Is it not God? Do we think it's just given over to Satan and he has this big party for, that's, that's absent of any righteousness for it? No. Now, to, to see this, let's go to Revelation. And I have a point behind this. Revelation 14, verse 9 10. Look at this. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image... And receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented, this person, this unbeliever who rejects the gospel, be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. God's attributes are eternal. He cannot be somewhere and it exists. There cannot exist a place outside of God's governance. So, to go to hell, go to hell, and Jesus Christ is there administering wrath. Let's look at one more thing, another question. Um, what are you saved from when you're saved? From the wrath of God. Thank you, R.C. Sprolite. From the wrath of God, right? Well, let's look at this. Romans 5. 
Well, it's... Come on. There we go. Romans 5. Um, let's start with verse 8. But God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. You're saved from wrath. When you're saved, you being saved from death and sin and sin and all of that stuff, that's a byproduct. That's a, that's a benefit of being saved from the wrath of God. But what you're saved from is God's wrath. His wrath is on the unbeliever, and every day that that unbeliever lives, God is angrier because they've sinned more. They've accumulated more sin. Okay? So, so that's important. I know we kind of got back there for a second. Uh, but it's important. All right. After calling, the word has gone out. Now that the Holy Spirit has, has had an, uh, an impact on that person's heart and mind, we have regeneration. There is actually something that happened in the heart, in the mind of the believer. I'm going to run out of room. Uh, which is we call regeneration. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart, mind, uh, belief. Okay? Con the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, and it converts the heart. Very simple. Now, here is a point of contention as well about the order that we're looking at. I'm going to have to extend this out. I didn't practice this on this board before I so it's a mess the next thing is faith okay faith this goes on faith is what's next now how can we say that faith is next if we're saying that regeneration came first I thought faith comes first we have the faith to believe and then we're regenerated and then we have new life isn't that what gives us new life, is believing? Well, there are some who would say that. And those some would be wrong. That's not what happens. What happens if we're regenerated, the Holy Spirit gives us new life, and with that new life comes the gift of faith. Right? Ephesians 2. With the regeneration of the heart, God then gives us the ability to exercise faith. Think about a newborn for just a second. Jesus talked about this, John, John uh, uh, 3. Right? Nicodemus comes to him. How can I be saved? You know, you must be born again. So think about a birth for just a second. What happens first? If regeneration is new life, if that is what this is, new life, right? And faith is the exercise, it's the cry out of that new life then what happens when a baby is born? Isn't it born first and then it cries? That's the natural order. And so God's not working. I mean, he's given us things in, in the natural world that we can look to as, as means to help us understand the spiritual truths. Jesus did this him, himself multiple times, right? Right. Romans 10. Faith come by hearing and hear by the word of God. Right? So all of those things are, are uh, correct. With faith, though, comes two things. And this is uh, in Romans as well. It's actually in the section, Mark, that you just mentioned. Belief and confession. I think if I start writing really, really small, y'all will start there. Faith. You believe and you confess, right? Doesn't Paul tell us that if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, you will be saved, right? In Jesus Christ. So we have to believe, and that belief is not of our own efforts. That belief is not something that we do because all of a sudden we've been convinced by some logical argument or by 
by whoever. We haven't been convinced intellectually that this is a true thing. It's very much like what, uh, what happened with Peter in Mark and um, Matthew 16, where he confesses who Jesus is. Jesus says, who do men say that I am? Oh, some people believe you're, you're John the Baptist. Some people believe you're Isaiah. You know, Jesus, come back from the dead. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. Right? You are the Messiah. And Jesus says, uh, Peter, flesh and blood's not given this information to you. right? But my Father who's in heaven has revealed this to you. So it's that revelation of that saving knowledge that then comes out. And it, you can't help for it to come out. Comes out. That's the purpose, Ephesians 2.10. You unto good works. Right? That one of those good works is for the gospel to be shown and to be lived wherever you are, in your workplace, in your home, wherever. Right? Okay. Well, following this is repentance. Now, some of these are simultaneous. Some of these happen, you know, it's just that quick, and you, we can't really, there's no, well, in you know, three or four weeks, you know, it'll, it'll come and you'll start getting comfortable in your faith and confession. You'll, no. Some of these things are, once you're regenerated, boom, you believe, you confess, you repent, you, these things begin. And some of them have a process. Some of them are not instantaneous. Some of them there's a process for Okay, But repentance is the turning away of your sin, from your sin to God. It's, it's clearly stated in Scripture a number of times. Okay? Um, let's, let me, real quick, if we could, what are we on, regeneration? Yeah, and, and here's what's neat is this is in both Old and New Testaments, which we can get into later, but... Uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament are the same testament. I don't mean that they're the same in history or that the people in the Old Testament somehow uh, had all of the benefits of Christ and His presence and His work. And his, I don't mean that. But I meant that God doesn't change. Man doesn't change. His need for a Savior doesn't change. Right? And so the means of salvation don't change. That happened in the Old Testament and how people are saved is how we're saved. Otherwise, why would Paul in Romans 4 tell us, give us the example of Abraham by faith, Abraham? Right? You're justified by faith. And he talks about Abraham. Why? If we're saved differently, why? Right? And he does, he does it there, he does it in Galatians. Hebrews talks in 11 uh, with the Hall of Faith. So we have, we, have, we have to look to this, uh, this backing for this, to understand this. But uh, Psalm 36, 9, and I'm, these are selective. These are not by any means um, uh, comprehensive. Psalm, what did I say, 36, 9. For the wellspring of life is with you. By means of your light we see light. For the wellspring of life is with you. Regenerate, uh, repentance. Wellspring of life is with you. Regeneration for that as well. Oh, that was regeneration. Let me get to repentance. Uh, I forgot to add passages for that one, so my apologies. But repentance is important. That is the next one. After repentance, we have justification. And again, this is going to continue from here. Here, does that make sense? See what I'm doing? The more complicated I can make this, the more I, I, I feel comfortable you're with me. Right. So justification. All right. Now, lots of big terms that come in with this. Expiation. We don't use these terms in our Christian vernacular anymore, and we should. Expiation is important. I'm going to give you four terms here. 
Expiation and propitiation. Now look, there's a lot of information in this. This is an overview. It would take weeks to go through this, unpack it, and kind of study, do a in-depth study. So my apologies for being brief in this, but this at least kind of gets you going, you know, an idea of what's going on. Expiation is the sacrifice by Christ that basically deals with our guilt. We are now not guilty. We are now seen by God as the debt paid. Okay? Propitiation, which is the Greek term, right? I mean, that's the English translation for what the Greek term means, but this is assuaging God's wrath. This is God being satisfied by the death of Christ so that his wrath is not on us, but on Christ. Well, if our sin is on Christ, biblically, what do we call that? What term is that? Because that goes into the thing. Imputation. These were terms that were common one, two, three hundred years ago. These were terms that were just, you know, uh, if, you, if you're familiar at all with the London Baptist Confession of Faith, goes back to the 1640s. Uh, you're familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith with the Presbyterians back to the 1640s. These are things that they came up with. Uh, it was catechetical. It was a catechism, a way of question and answer so that their children would grow up knowing the truth just by question and answer. My son's doing this with, with his girls, uh, and it was really neat. We had dinner last night, and he's sitting there asking her questions. Who made you? God. What else did God make you? God made all things. Why did God make you? Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. Uh, it, you know, so it really helps to kind of set up things. But the imputation that we're talking about here, there are three in Scripture. Now, an imputation is the putting of one thing on uh, one person onto another. Okay? It is, it is putting off from one person onto another. So the first one was Adam, Adam's sin, and really all of our sin. He just was the representative. Adam's sin on Christ. Now, I put an X there for Christ because that's the Greek letter key. That's what was used historically by early Christians to represent Christ. I'm not trying to leave Christ Sunday school, it's just shorthand. Okay? Adam's sin was put on Christ. Adam was created in righteousness, and then he sinned. So now it fell to someone who would come, could come, and take that sin away from Adam so that Adam could be saved. The second one is uh, God's wrath, because sin deserves wrath. Wrath on Christ, God's wrath on Christ. So if Christ takes my sin and he's angry with my sin, then where's that wrath going to be now directed on whoever's taken it? That's Christ. That's imputation. Right? God has imputed. He has, he has made Christ. Right? God made him who knew no sin to be sin. Ooh. Christ wasn't sinful. He was perfectly holy and righteous. But he made him who had no sin to be sin? That's imputation. And then the third one, and this is the wonderful part of all this, but it's Christ's righteousness on us. Right? Which, this is called something historically that's called the great exchange. Right? Christ's, Christ's uh, um, sin, our sin on Christ and Christ's righteousness on us. That's been exchanged. So he became like me so that I could become like him. Right? A wonderful message, really. Nothing else like it. Buddhism, Confucianism, Mormonism, Islam, nothing can explain sin and guilt and atonement like Christianity can. All right. 
So once, once all, and again, all of this kind of happens, you can't even, it's so microscopic, you can't even kind of, but it still happens in time, okay? And the reformers had this view of salvation. I'm big on the reformers. Like, the reformers had this view of salvation where you were saved, Right? Past tense. You were saved by the decree of God. You were saved by God's foreknowledge, for whom he foreknew. He predestined to be conformed. You were saved before time began. You were saved. But you are being saved. Oh, being. Ugh. You are being saved in present time. Right? Sanctification. You were saved in time by justification because that was the death of Christ. That's where these imputations took place. It took place in an actual point in time in history. The justification did. Right? There was a time when you weren't justified. Right? But you were justified by, uh, by the death of Christ. All right. And then you have sanctification. And we're still under the our being saved. Because you will be saved is the third one. That's future. And that is glorification. And we'll get to that at the very end. That's our destination. Okay. Right now we have sanctification. S-A-N-C-T-S. Sanctification. That's the process like Christ. It's being a marble piece of brick, piece of stone, and being chiseled into the image of Christ. It's not fun and it's painful, but that's the process, right? If a diamond can speak, I'm sure it would say the same thing. I don't like heat, time, and pressure. But that's what makes it up. So sanctification. Now, here's the interesting thing, and Paul again addresses this in Romans. The law. Sanctification is the law at work in you. It's not you at work under the law. Big difference. There's a big difference between you having to work and obey and follow the rules and to, to, to think that you have any hope for salvation. God saves us from that. He put, you know, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. You know, lay all your cares on me. You know, so when Christ takes that, the imputation, he's taking the weight of the obedience to the law upon himself. Now, what are the two extremes concerning the law? I can forget the law and be antinomian, right? Anti meaning against, namas meaning law against the law. I can be autonomous, self-law, and I can do my own thing and just forget. Oh, the God's law doesn't apply today. Ooh, Paul would disagree. Jesus would disagree. God disagrees. The Bible disagrees. It's just not right. God didn't save you from the law. He saved you from the burden of the law, the work under the law. He saved you to obey the law. That's what he saved you for. If he saved you and there is no law involved, what do you do once you're saved? Anything you want? Should I continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Right? So that's, that's the law. Sanctification is to the law. And then the, one, the last one just before uh, glorification is the preservation. Preservation. Or you may have heard it as perseverance of the saints. Right? What God has decreed and God has died for, God the Father did the electing, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, uh, paid price, the Holy Spirit converts and convicts. And so it is a Trinitarian work of salvation in the life of the believer. You cannot be saved apart from all three. 1 Corinthians 12.3, look at this, this is, this is exciting. 
1 Corinthians, New Testament, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Ugh. Come on. Wait a second. I think I'm doing. Yes, yeah, I'm going read. Uh, who's got it? Okay, now, you'll have some critics who come along and say, well, I can say Jesus is Lord. Does that mean I'm saved? No, we understand these things in context, right? No one can say Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. In other words, it can't be a reality. No one can say it and mean it apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's just what Scripture says, right? Now, one more passage. I don't know if I can bring it up or not, but Second Thess... Uh, uh, 2 Thessalonians, that's Timothy, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. This is just even more excitement. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. Anyone? Anyway. Wow. From the beginning... God chose you to salvation. How? Through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, so there's God and Spirit, and belief in the truth. Well, there's truth. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. We have, again, a Trinitarian... When people say, you know, the the Bible doesn't talk about the Trinity, where can you find it? You can't find the Word. Well, it's there. Right? It's, it's all over Scripture to see how salvation works. So really, honestly, better you kind of have this in mind about how things work, the better you can see the Trinity at work. Really. Because we have God here at the beginning, and it's not that God's absent throughout, but in terms of the roles of the Trinity, we have the Father here. We have uh, the Holy Spirit at work here. Right? We have just... This is Christ. And then we have the Holy Spirit again who brings us back to God again. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful thing, this. And so salvation cannot happen apart from these three, even in the Old Testament. Uh, one thing you've got to be careful about is if God doesn't change, then his method of saving doesn't change. Right, and so we could take Abraham, put him into this little flow chart, and he would he would he would go right through it. Right, David, go right through it. Noah, go right through it. Right, all of God's people go through this because this is how God saves. So, I don't know how much time we have left, but we, uh, let's open it up for any uh, comments. And I didn't mean to hog the whole time. So, any comments, questions? Jeff, where does um, substitutionary substitution? Christ is our substitute is, is here. Yes, the wrath on Christ. Yep. Sounds like I've stunned you all into... Well, it's not really a good chart, but it's... Yeah. I'm going to take a picture of this and then I'll upload it with the recording tomorrow. Um, Before anybody erases it. Well, I'm really good at excuses, ask Aaron. Uh, But uh, uh, we have family in town and it was a little difficult to get... Uh, all of this onto a chart before uh, this morning. But I, I can put this on a chart and be happy to have some. Send out. Back, back at, the, yeah. at the regeneration, the new life. If, not to get back into our minutes, but yeah. there are those. I mean, that is a, that's a critical point where, it comes, where there are those that 
I accepted Christ, and then he gave me new life. Okay, so I, my own faith, my, I believed in Jesus, and he gave me a new life. He gave me a new heart. But see, I, I believe the Bible teaches that I can't believe in Christ without a new heart. Go back to Ezekiel, whatever, uh-huh. it's 11. I give him, a, I take up that, that, as long as I have a heart of stone, I can't believe. I, can, I may be able to understand with my mind, but I can't believe it in my heart because it's stone. It's dead. Right. Christ, God takes, predetermined, takes that heart out of stone and places it with a heart of flesh. That's regeneration. I now have a new life. I have a new beating heart, born of the Spirit, which I had nothing to do with. It's like I had nothing to do with my physical birth. And now I believe mm-hmm. that new heart. And that's, that's a critical thing. It is. Not a thing. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, some like this saying and some don't, but Jonathan Edwards had, had a, a quote, you may be familiar with it, um, that man brings nothing to salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. You know, it's like, wow, that's <laughs> it's pretty powerful when you think about, I, I've, what have I contributed to the need for me to be saved? My sin. And I've even done that unwillingly, right? I didn't say, here's my sin, Lord. Do with it what you will. I, I sin uh, happily and willfully and you know, without coercion. That's my nature. That's your nature. We are all in this boat together. And so when we do evangelize, when we do talk to someone, right, this is another problem with, with modern-day evangelism is that too often we say, well, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin and believe on him. I did, right? Look, to, look at me as the example. Instead of saying, I know where you're, I know where you're at because I was there too. And it was hopeless and it was, it was horrible. And I did my best to run from God. And God is. We point to God, not here. And, and that's one of the things that we are all in the same boat. If people, look, the church, the world hates the church by and large because the church is full of hypocrites. Right? Do this, don't do this, and we turn around and go, do, that's, they hate that. I can't blame them. But what's the answer to that? Well, that's like going to the hospital and saying, I just don't like going to the hospital when I'm sick because it's full of sick people. Yes. It's full of sick people, and that's why you need to go to the hospital. Right? The hospital is there to... And so that's why we go to Christ. We, we run to... And the law should be a thing that con, convicts. It's convict... All of the whole world... Get this. The whole world is under condemnation and the wrath of God precisely because they have not obeyed the law. They are violators of the law. That's what makes them culpable. They're guilty before God because they've dismissed the law, they've suppressed the truth of who God is. And as Romans 1 says, they've turned all of that upside down and into a lie, right? Exchanging the attributes of the invisible God, the things that are seen, right? So it's, it's highly important that we understand that. Um, yeah, anything else? How are we doing on time? 9.51? Five more minutes? Okay, I will close in prayer if there's nothing else. So, oh, beating Andrew to the punch. This is perpetual. perpetual. Yeah, but, but here's, here's a distinction, and, and I'm not trying to parse terms here. 
It is important. This is salvation. This isn't salvation. This isn't salvation. So we, we have to, seriously, we need to be cognizant about how we use the term salvation because it's all-encompassing. It includes all persons of the Trinity. It includes all of time, past, present, future. It includes all of my life. It includes his decrees. So God works everything. He's decreed all the circumstances in my life in such a way so that when I hear the and this is why mercy and grace are significant. Because I did absolutely, I, I did my darndest, sorry for the profanity, but yeah, I did my absolute best not to hear the gospel, even if I was raised in a Christian home. You know, I, our nat, man's natural state is to hate the thing of God. And if God's word is true, then that has to have been true for me. I must have hated God's law. However much I pretended to like it, right? however well-behaved I was, is irrelevant. Yeah, Mark? pretty close now. Let's go ahead and pray. Our Lord and our Father, we thank you for loving us that from your, um, uh, from your decree, you have set a people uh, to save, uh, that you have sent your Son to redeem those people and your Spirit to secure them. And we thank you, Lord, for doing the work, the miraculous work of regeneration in our hearts. We thank you for your word that helps us understand this, these terms and this process of how you work in our lives. We just praise you, Lord, for being above creation and outside of time. Uh, Lord, how secure and um, safe all of